0: Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, verse, uh, chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your gladness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything Think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And God, the God of peace will be with you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. Several merchants, a printer, a shopkeeper, a silk worker, two tailors, and a hat maker. Those were the occupations listed on the passenger manifest for the Mayflower when it set sail from Plymouth, England in September of 1620. None of them terribly practical job skills when the goal was survival in a hostile environment thousands of miles from home. Some scholars suspect there may not have been a single farmer or a hunter or even a fisherman among them. We do know that for sure the pilgrims failed to bring with them any cows, horses, plows, or fishing line. They did, however, have candle snuffers, a drum, a trumpet, and a complete written history of the Ottoman Empire. Oh, And one gentleman brought along 126 pairs of shoes for himself. When the Mayflower reached Cape Cod in mid December, the men went ashore to begin building the settlement. But the winter was so harsh that more than half of them died during construction. The women and children stayed on board the ship where tuberculosis, scurvy, and pneumonia took their toll. By spring, fewer than 50 of the original 110 passengers were still alive. Squanto and Somerset, two braves of the Pawtucket tribe, taught the pilgrims some basic farming and hunting skills so that the daily routine became more familiar. But it never was what anyone would call easy. They saw more than their share of suffering and starvation. Every single person lost at least someone that they loved to illness or disease. They had barely survived that first miserable winter when suddenly there was another one looming on the horizon. Circumstances were bleak and the future grim, and Governor Bradford had the gall to say, Inasmuch as God has given us an abundant harvest and made the forests to abound with game and the seas with fish, and inasmuch as God has protected us from danger, spared us from disease, and granted us freedom to worship, now I proclaim that all pilgrims gather at the meeting house on Thursday, November the 29th, to render thanksgiving to Almighty God for all God's blessings." To render thanksgiving to God for all of God's blessings? It sounds to me like Governor Bradford had been reading the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The Bible is full of commands to rejoice, which sometimes sounds a little like hey, have a nice day. But instead of accompanying a yellow smiley face, the Bible commands appear in highly unlikely places. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. What he doesn't say, and what we learn almost accidentally, is that he's writing these words while sitting in a prison cell awaiting trial. He's isolated from his colleagues. He's worried about the churches. He started And he's well aware that this trial could result in his death. Paul has plenty to be concerned about. And so what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the four short chapters of this letter to the church in Philippi, the word joy or rejoice appears 14 times. I know what it is to have little, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being well fed and of going hungry, whether my hands are full or my hands are empty, rejoice in the Lord always. I don't know about you, but sometimes that feels hopelessly unrealistic to me. To rejoice always? Life just doesn't work that way. I can't vouch for this story personally, but the preacher who told it in a sermon I heard a few years ago swears that it was in a newspaper in Florida some years back. The story goes that a guy was working on his motorcycle on the patio of his house one day while his wife was in the kitchen. He was revving the engine when somehow the motorcycle slipped into gear. The man still holding the handlebars was dragged through the sliding glass door and dumped on the floor in his living room just inside the house. His wife, hearing the crash, ran into the room. She found her husband lying on the floor, cut and bleeding, with the motorcycle lying next to him and the patio door shattered. The wife ran to the phone and called 911. Now, they lived up at the top of a large hill, so she went down several flights of stairs to the street to direct the paramedics up, to the, up the steps to the house. After the ambulance arrived the tra- the, and transported her husband to the hospital, the wife picked up the motorcycle and pushed it back outside. She noticed that some of the gasoline had spilled on the floor, so she grabbed some paper towels and wiped it up. She went to the bathroom to wash her hands and tossed the paper towels into the toilet. Then she left to go meet her husband at the hospital. The husband was treated in the ER and released to come back home. He walked into the house where he saw the shattered patio door, the hole that he'd knocked in the living room wall, and the damage that he'd done to his motorcycle. It was a mess and he was very upset with himself. He went to the bathroom sat on the toilet, and lit a cigarette. After finishing, he stood halfway up and flipped the cigarette between his legs into the toilet bowl. The wife was in the kitchen when she heard a loud explosion and her husband screaming. She ran into the bathroom to find him lying face down on the floor, his trousers blown away with burns up and down the back of his legs. His wife again ran to the phone and called 911. As luck would have it, have it, the same ambulance was sent, and the wife met the drivers down on the street again. The paramedics loaded her husband on the stretcher and began to carry him down to the ambulance. While they were going down the steps, one of the EMTs asked his wife what her husband did to burn himself so badly. She told them the story, and the paramedics started to laugh so hard that one of them dropped the stretcher and dumped the husband out he fell down the rest of the stairs and broke his arm. I haven't had to make that hospital visit yet, thankfully. But I know what it's like when it feels as if the entire universe is conspiring against you. I know that you do too. I wrote this sermon this week in the midst of Talking to some folks who've been laid off or fear losing their jobs in the next few months. I met with several folks who've recently lost parents or grandparents. Like you, I've watched the stock market fall and rise and then fall again. I turned on the news and heard of the killing of four students at the University of Virginia. And then this morning, shoot, a shooting at a nightclub in Colorado. I've seen the faces of hungry children staring up at me from magazine cover. A couple of weeks ago, I walked into a healthcare center at one of our nursing homes, and from down the hall, I heard someone crying, Why? Why? Why, indeed? It appears that that question may not be one that we get an answer to, at least not on this side of eternity what we do get is some guidance as to how we live in the midst of it. And that comes from right here in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Karl Barth says the joy that Paul describes here is God's great nevertheless. It's God's announcement that the way things are is not at all the way things will be. Things look bad. Nevertheless, I will rejoice. One shining example of that comes from right here in Psalm 143 that Rachel just read. Pursued by enemies on the verge of exhaustion, hanging by his fingernails, David says, I will remember the days of old. I will think about your deeds. I will meditate on the works of your hands. No matter how bad things seem in the present, I will remember that God is always in the business of making new things. Psalm 143 is what one scholar calls a song of impossibility. A song that makes the radical claim that covenant, that co- conventional definitions of reality do not define what God might yet do. My enemies pers- are pursuing me. Nevertheless, God is in charge. Everything in my life seems to be going wrong. Nevertheless, God has been faithful in the past and God can be trusted in the future. Whatever comes... Whatever happens, whatever goes right or wrong in my life, whatever is next, I will will rejoice in the Lord always. I don't know about you, but there are plenty of days when I don't feel like doing that. There are plenty of days that by 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm wondering if things could possibly get any worse. I know you've had those too. Or maybe you're having one of those years. People we love get sick and die. Or the person who declared that they would love you forever decides that someone else is more interesting. Or the college that seems so perfect for you says you're 87th on the wait list. Or the company you've invested 25 years in determines that that now your position is redundant. Nevertheless, Paul says, When the worst seems to to happen, nevertheless, I will trust in God. When life seems unbearable, nevertheless, I will remain faithful. When all I want to do is give up, nevertheless, I will rejoice. If you're like me, sometimes my brain needs a little help remembering to do that. That's why when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we sing. We sing not just because we need some way to fill up an hour-long worship service because a 45-minute sermon would be excruciating. (laughs) We sing because singing reminds us of who we are and what we know to be true about God. The psalmist says, "I I will meditate on all your works. The Hebrew word for meditate actually means to hum. So to meditate on God is to hum the melody of God's faithfulness. That's why we sing. We sing so those songs, those words are humming through our hearts and our minds for the next seven days. We sing and the melody sticks in our souls and carries us through the week no matter what comes. We sing the songs we're singing this morning. We sing, we gather together to sing the Lord's blessing. We sing, come ye thankful people, come. We sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing, now thank we all all our God with heart and hands and voices. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Back in 1998, the Los Angeles Dodgers won the National League Championship and went on to win the World Series, which, as an eight-year-old Oakland A's fan at the time, I still remember with a heavy heart. Nevertheless, after Kurt Gibson's heroic walk-off home run in Game 1, the biggest story of the series that year was a pitcher for the Dodgers by the name of Oral Hersheiser. During the regular season, Hershiser won just about every pitching award a pitcher can. 6 straight shutouts in 63 consecutive scoreless innings. The most valuable player, the toast of the baseball world. As soon as the World Series was over, Hershiser was invited to be Johnny Carson's guest on The Tonight Show. Carson was interviewing him and asked how Hershiser Seemed to stay so calm and steady and focused in those incredibly tense and pressure filled situations when he was out on the pitcher's mound all by himself with 50,000 fans screaming and millions of people watching on TV. Hersheiser's answer stunned Carson. I sing a hymn, he said. I'm a Presbyterian, and so I sing a hymn to myself out there that we sing every single Sunday in church. Carson was momentarily speechless. When he recovered, he asked if Hersheiser would sing it. Right then, right there on national television. And Hersheiser did. You know what he sang? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Amen. And so, O God, we have lifted up much, and yet there are still many things that remain in our hearts, those things that we don't know how to give words to, those pains and laments, and yet those joys as well. And we know that you hear them, O God. And hear now that prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings.